Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, hello. My name is Trey Gilmore, and I'm actually coming at you, uh, not from the stage on a Sunday morning, but the next day, re-recording this, because we uh, unfortunately had some technical difficulties. So, uh, life happens. It's funny, I made a joke on Sunday that I felt like it was one of those days where you just like, it's kind of chaos. I didn't even, halfway through the service, have a microphone on, so I realized I had to have one put on in the middle of the service. So yeah, it's one of those days. So um, I just want to walk through the uh, just the teaching, and uh, so yeah, we're going to have mentioned some photos and things like that we're going to have up on the site as well, if you're curious, because a lot of it deals with um, some stuff in Israel. So uh, I, I, uh, I wanted to open this Palm Sunday, which is the start of Holy Week, with a fascinating story that started in February 2015 in Scotland. A Viral phenomena occurred when a mother of the bride texted her daughter a photo of what would be her dress to the wedding. We know this occurrence as hashtag dressgate, hashtag the dress, hashtag blue and black, or hashtag white and gold. Now on uh, Sunday, we had people literally talking and arguing with each other for about two minutes after I said this. So if you're sitting beside someone and you would like to start arguing with them, you can pause this at any point and start arguing with him as to which you saw and which one you think is right. Um, this was the wildest phenomenon. I mean, within 24 hours, you're looking at 4.4 million tweets. There's just a, the world was just in a crossfire of opinion. And, and what's crazy is the dress was actually blue and black. Um, but and as far as research, one article said that two thirds of BuzzFeed users were convinced that it was white and gold. So in some places, the majority was actually wrong. And what, what's significant about this and what's so controversial about it is that, you know, you're looking at something face value, you're looking at this dress, and you truly believe, like, it is one way. Like, you, you, you can't, your eyes are deceiving you, you think you're right. And, and for all, you know, intensive measures, you kind of are right in the way that you're seeing it, the way that your eyes are processing it. Um, neuroscientist Jay uh, Neitz, he's been studying stuff like this for decades, and he said that he's never encountered in 30 years, a more individually interpretive photo. You know, he studies those ones that are that are kind of made to do this. Like, you know, you might remember the goblet photo that looks like a goblet, but then on the other uh, color, it looks like two faces and things like that. And yeah, he just said there's, there's never been anything like this, and it was completely unintentional. Um, but but the reason I bring this up is I just think this is this is kind of the gateway into what is occurring this week during Holy Week. Um, I grew up in a church where, you know, we celebrated Easter. We, we sometimes celebrated Palm Sunday in kids' ministry. You'd have the palm branches, and you'd whack each other with them, and that was always fun. Um, but I never grew up kind of digging into this whole entire week. And what's fascinating is uh, there is so much going on here, and there's so much tension, and there's so much chaos. We actually just spent some time before this uh, in a Salem moment, which is a time to pause and reflect and we kind of went through this just uh, meditative video that was called Blessing in the Chaos. And, and so this week, we don't realize, is, a, is an absolute week of chaos. 
and that there is there is there is just the utmost blessing that comes out of this, but there has to be chaos in order to see this blessing. A lot of times we just think about Easter and, and this whole week we're like excited for Resurrection Sunday when Jesus resurrects, and we kind of miss the six days, seven days before that where there's just a lot of tension. And so today the tides are turning. We're we're stepping into this radical week of Jesus's last week on earth. Um, you have him having healed tons of people, loving the marginalized, teaching on this thing called the kingdom, shutting up hypocritical leaders. Uh, but he was doing all this with a tendency to hide, to, to see in secrecy, avoidance of popularity, fame, or influence. I mean, he was. It's not that he was trying to be deceptive, but that he, when he would grow in, in influence, people would try to flock him and make him king. He would he would avoid it. He would leave. He would flee because that was not his intention. But now he's walking into Jerusalem and he kind of shifts gears. It starts to become far more provocative and powerful. Um, and so uh, the tides are turning. And so this week, as we as we call it Holy Week, some call it Passion Week, um, there is a massive storm brewing. And so Palm Sunday, uh, I would argue, is honestly misunderstood by most people even today. At this, at, In the text we're going to read, it was under, misunderstood by almost everyone, uh, but in our own lives, we also very much misunderstand the Palm Sunday and what's going on. In fact, what's wild about the Holy Week and this beginning of Palm Sunday, and, and I literally didn't even realize this until this week. I, I had, like I said, I'd grown up not really, not really doing Holy Week or Monday Thursday or Good Friday or really just kind of like reflecting on this week. If you look at the four gospel accounts of Jesus, there is 89 chapters in all four accounts, and 29 of them, basically one-third of them, are just about this very week. I think about that. I think about if you follow Jesus— and, and, and a third of what is said about him is about this week. You should know this week better than any week of the year. You should know this week better than any... Like, if you're a Christian, this is this is your bread and butter. Like, and in fact, you should probably know a timeline. You should probably know what happens on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and what's what's building and the tension. And, and I just felt convicted by this. I mean, you look at um, Matthew, from Matthew 21 to 28, all about this week. Uh, Mark, a third of Mark, 11 to 16, all about this week. A quarter of Luke, Luke 19 to 24. And then nearly half of John, so John 12 to John 20, is all about this week. And then even even wilder, a third of John, John 13 to 19, is dedicated just to one day during this week. So when you read the Gospels, one, one guy, uh, Andy Nacelli, joked, he said the Gospels are basically essentially passion narratives, right? Uh, with extended introductions. <laughs> Basically, like, this is the theme of the story when we read the gospel accounts, and we forget that, right? Jesus does you all these other things, and he's traveling, and but like at the end of the day, this is it. And so I, I asked, I remember asking our church over the last several weeks, we, we, we put a ton of energy into creating an app that was interactive for this week. Like, can we just sit in this week? Can we feel the weight of the tension? Can we feel the timing of things? Can we feel Palm Sunday, to cleanse Monday, to what we what we named Tension Tuesday, and you know, and these type of things, it's like, can we can we feel the narrative of what's going on? Because it makes one the death that much more real to us and engaging in our lament and our mourning. But then the resurrection becomes that much more sweeter that we realize that chaos had to occur in order for blessing to come out of it. So as we uh, as we as we kind of lean into this week. We uh, we realize that uh, the the dress gate idea is a good is a good framework for what's going on here. There's people seeing Jesus in certain ways, and they have very specific opinions of who he is. So, uh, the best way to describe this Jesus coming into this town on Palm Sunday 
before we get into the text, is is there's kind of these three variables that are making what N.T. Wright would call the absolute perfect storm. So you have the Romans, who <clears throat> this is a little history lesson, but the Romans who would typically have a ruler, the, the, before this it was Augustus Caesar, he had come to reign, and they were seen as the ultimate ruler in the world. I mean, they were like the world power. And they, they would be called, essentially, the son of God. I mean, they, they believed in that time in the Middle East that was the son of God, and they had... Um, basically, they were the chief priest, the pontifex maximus. They were like, I mean, they were it, right? They were basically divine. And if you asked anyone in the Middle East who was the son of God, you would you would say, oh, it's 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 Caesar. And and people would even say this. This is wild to me. They'd say when he would arrive, they would say, good news, which means gospel. Good news. We have an emperor, justice, peace, security, and prosperity. Ours forever. The son of God has become the king of the world. I just, like, I mean, that sounds a lot like what Jesus is going through here. And so people had known that there had been things like this, right? I mean, this is this is Rome. And he was on the money. And so later he dies. Uh, Augustus dies in 14 AD. And, you know, the story that we're talking about is anywhere from 30 to 35 AD. And so Tiberius follows suit here. And then he, you know, he's divine and he's on the money and all that. And people are like, this is the chief priest, the son of God, all this kind of stuff. And... And they start taking over land. I mean, Rome is just is just going crazy. So what Rome does, historically, we know, is they take over Israel. They take over Jerusalem, specifically, that city. And Jerusalem was the heart of the temple for the Jewish people. It was the Mecca for, uh, you know, for them to be able to come and do the Passover and all that. So essentially, Rome subjugates them. So if you're into, like, I don't know, history and war and stuff like that, subjugating is basically what we would call, like, a puppeting, which means that... Rome would control the city, but they would kind of let them live in their own way in the city, but they had to pay severe taxes. If you broke the laws of the Roman culture, they break your kneecaps. <laughs> but you can still kind of live as a Jew and practice your Jewish things as long as it doesn't get in the way of Rome and what their agenda is. And Rome at this time really just cared about money and food. I mean, this was a massive grain supply that would feed the rest of the Roman Empire. So you have this tension, right? Rome is ruling over Jerusalem. They have men stationed there, but it's really like not like their cultural home. They are just subjugating Jerusalem. And then, so then this brings us to the second variable. So first you have the Romans who rule in power and fear. And, and then you have the Jews who, the Jews, the Israelites who have lived a story of thousands of years. If we read the Old Testament, we have Abraham and to be a father of the nation. Then Moses, the great teacher, help administers God's laws. And then this fails they don't do so well at that. And then you have King David, and he governs the people, and he's great, but that fails. And then you go into exile, and you have this long waiting period where you're just like, Lord, where are you? Which is, we forget that this was, I mean, this was a long period of time. Like, it is not 10 years, where, where is God? It is hundreds. And I, I just think about, like, generations of people in exile that are dealing with, where is God in this? And so they're waiting, and they're waiting for this final climactic reality that all these prophets had foretold. And they get, you know, they get they get out of exile and they rebuild and it's great and so that's kind of where we are now where they have their 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 city their temple but it's being it's not everything they want they're still under the Roman foot and if you can't pay the taxes this you're still in trouble so there's this massive angst waiting um, as they remember the past of of the Passover if we remember the Passover the Passover was in Exodus, when the Lord saved them, their children, by the blood of the Lamb in, on Egypt, they, they put the blood over the, the, the doorposts, and it was a signifying measure of the, the atonement of the weight of sin, that God's presence cannot be around sin, and so it had to be, it had to be atoned, it had to be removed and, 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 and extinguished from God's presence. And so similar 
I was the best way I describe it is you know when you're 15 and you're just pumped for your driver's license. Like every every Jewish person, no matter the age, has been talking about this future coming Messiah that would that would set them free, that would save them. And in their mind, well, what are we set free from? Well, the people who are who are basically enslaving us and charging us extreme taxes and 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 they've they've had this you know experience happen just all the time. Um, I mean, think about if you think about the Old Testament pattern, like they knew. Psalms, Ezekiel, Isaiah, it was clear that God would come and set his rule forever. Like, we know that, we read that. Um, but the pattern was unique. The pattern for these people, this is what they had experienced. They would experience a wicked ruler of some sort, and then they would suffer, and then they'd have some sort of hero or person or figure, and then they'd have a battle or some sort of, you know, battle-like thing, and then they'd have victory. And then they would rule the surrounding nations, and then they would feel like God's dwelling would be established. This was a pattern that happened several times in the Old Testament, in, in just like a cyclical motion. So there, there are now at, well, we've had wicked, wicked rulers, we've had Rome, we're suffering, we're paying heavy taxes, we can't really afford to live, and, and so they're at this stage where they're waiting for a hero, and they're ready for a battle. Like, they are, they are thinking that, that the kingdom, in order for their kingdom to become a reality that was promised to them, that it must come through force. So they're, they're, they're looking out, right? And we, we've had people that this has already occurred at. You had Judah the Hammer or Judah, Judas Maccabeus. This was 200 years earlier before Jesus. This is a fun little historical fact. If you're getting bored, I'm sorry. I'm almost done. But 200 years before Judah the Hammer, he had a three-year campaign ending in a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He cleansed the temple, which is basically what Jesus will do tomorrow, or today, actually, technically, and the, the temple at that time was taken by Syria. It was desecrated. Judah fought to restore it. They celebrate by waving palm branches. I mean, are you kidding me? This story had happened 200 years prior. He and his family reigned as chief priests, and the, he was known as the king of the Jews. Unfortunately, his family was a train wreck and fractured into many groups, some of which are Pharisees at this point in Jesus' story holding the tradition. So people have seen what it looks like. Once again, a hero, a battle, the victory, rule of surrounding nations, God's dwelling established. At the end of the day, though, they're still enslaved, and they're waiting again for who is this next powerful hero? Who will lead us and destroy Rome? And it's just not going to happen that way. <laughs> and and uh, um, to add to this, the Jews all have this 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 kind of just tension boiling within them. And then you add what was Jerusalem at this time was a city anywhere from twenty to thirty thousand. Some would say fifty thousand. You add six to seven times as many people into that into that city this week because Passover week you would all come from your podunk towns and you'd celebrate Passover. You'd engage in that worship uh, together, and this was not this was not uh, this was not um, Columbus during an OSU game. We got all these hotels, we got all these Airbnbs. The Marriott was not in Jerusalem at this point, and so what are you dealing with? You're dealing with literally people sleeping everywhere. I mean, anywhere there's a bed. Uh, well, you know, Jesus born in a manger. I mean, there's probably people sleeping with some animals. It's just crazy. The, the city's insane. They have to pull out extra food. In fact, the Romans are preparing roads and securing, you know, um, the, the gates and things like that. Statistically, they would argue that there'd be around 2,000 Roman troops compared to what would be anywhere from 150 to, you know, two or 300,000 people. This is a tense moment. Like, Rome... They, they, they don't really fully understand the Jewish culture, but they're like, man, if uh, something's going to happen, it's going to happen probably when there's, you know, six amount of times of Israelites at this city. <clears throat> so we have just a massive tension going on. There's tons of Jewish people who have been yearning for the hero in the battle, and there are 2,000 Roman people, Roman soldiers, just kind of in, in, just getting ready for this. So you have the Romans, the first part, 
you have the Jewish people's second part, and then the third part is Jesus, is God coming into this storm. Jesus of Nazareth, the small town, a nobody coming massively into a, a massively tense moment. And he, what he's doing is, um, just to kind of give you some foundation, he's fulfilling Zechariah 9, which, you know, most um, footnotes would be there. Zechariah 9, it just says this. I'm going to read part of it. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, your daughter of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is legitimate and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a young donkey, the full of a female donkey. He just talks about how he'll remove basically the enemies from among them and announce peace to the nation. And and this is, <clears throat> this is um, you know, it ends with, because of our covenant relationship secured with blood, I will release your prisoners from the waterless pit. There is there is this just angst, like I said, and, and Jesus is fulfilling this in, in the in the way of this this um, prophecy, and Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and uh, and and he is he is entering into like I said what what NT Wright would call the divine storm or the divine hurricane sweeping in from the ocean, and and uh, you're about to have love interact with this cold empire of Rome and the overheated you know, tense aspirations of Israel. Like, it is just massive storm coming in. You got a lot of variables, and something's going to happen. And Jesus rides into this storm on a, on a donkey because he's just fulfilling this. And um, you think about, he has a large crew behind him that he had just done a massive miracle. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He's got people following him because of this. He's got quite the, quite the crew. And so I just want to picture this. Uh, if you're listening in the car or online, you might not be able to pull up photos, but I have some photos on the site of just what this inter- what this geography looks like. It really helps put into mind what we're dealing with this week. Jesus is traveling from Bethany to, I think it's pronounced Bethpade. It's not, we don't usually say it right. We just call it Bathpage. But, uh, and he, that's where he gets the donkey. And then he's traveling down this hill which the hill was Mount of Olives, the base would be where the olive grove would be, the Garden of Gethsemane, that's where he's betrayed, where he prays. And he's entering through the east gate in Jerusalem. Now, if you look at the second photo, that's like a little more of an aerial kind of uh, schematic of the of the city. Um, he's basically entering into the temple gate. I mean, it's basically like what would be directly into the temple area. And the temple is massive. I mean, if you look, it's a massive part of the city. Like I said, no, no, no Jewish person had seen anything quite as significant as the temple at that time it was it was pretty pretty amazing and he's coming into that city and what's so unique to me is is people don't really study this and this is why I have the photos up here is one the gate that he goes through there's tons of gates to go through and uh he goes through the east gate which is unique I'll explain that in a second and then he also you know he's he's coming with the weirdest just group of people. I mean, his entourage is just a bunch of, uh, in our culture, losers, like literally losers. It is quite the entrance. And so uh, if we look on uh, verse 14, we're, we're going through John 12 today. Um, sorry, I didn't just tell you that until now. Uh, in verse 14, skipping past 12 and 13, it says, Jesus found a young donkey, like I said, in that small town, sat on it, and just as it is written, do not be afraid, people of Zion. Look, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. He's literally quoting what's written. And he rides into this city. Just picture this. He rides into the city through the gate. You can see in the photo that's now, it's now blocked up because I don't know, 1480 or something, a guy got nervous because he had read prophecies. And so they, they blocked it and then out to cemetery, but he went through that gate on a donkey. Um, and just think about this. Okay. He's riding through the gate 
an east gate, not that not that big of a gate. I mean, it's it's not a bad gate, but out of all the gates, not the most like impressive of Jerusalem. Rides through this kind of obscure gate uh, on a donkey, which you know Jewish people at this time they know they're they're reading. Nowadays, we just forget stuff because we'll just re-Google it when we need to remember it. Back then, you like remembered stories people told you, and people had heard the stories of King David riding in this triumphal entry as king on a donkey. And who's greater than King David? And then King Solomon, his son, is the richest man of all, the wisest man. He rides in on a donkey as well. Jesus is fulfilling the son of David. And people are seeing this, right? They're, they're absorbing, oh my gosh, he's on a donkey. That reminds me of people who are on a donkey. And he rides in and, and he's, he is causing an absolute storm. In fact, if you read in Matthew's account in 21.10, it says this. It says, as he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was thrown into an uproar. Some translations might say stirring, and, and they say, who is this? And then the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. I love how they say prophet. That's funny. It's like, yeah, you know, I think he knows some stuff. This uproar stirring, like I said, this is the storm of the three groups. This is the storm of... This is the storm of the three groups. And he's creating this massive stirring. Now, what's, what's even, I think, cooler, some scholars would argue that Pilate had, would have come into town at the same day or the same timing for this because he wanted to make sure and secure all every Jerusalem. And Pilate was, the, we know later, uh, is, puts Jesus on trial. He's Roman. And so Pilate had just come to town. He is in a different gate. He is a far greater entrance with a massive, you know, he's not going to come with a bunch of ragtag people who are like, you know, sick and poor and whatever. He's come with an army. He's probably riding on a horse too, not a donkey <laughs> or a chariot, right? Like his entrance is far greater. I just like think about it like this. This is the best way to describe it. If you were, if let's say you had a birthday party and everybody, it's not a surprise. You know that everyone's at this house, right? For having thrown a party for you. But instead of going in the front door, you basically go through the garage and you come in the side door. And while everyone's like waiting and staring at the front door, you like pop in behind, you grab a drink and you're like, oh, hey guys. And they're like, um, uh, hey, we, wow, okay, well, this is, you know, we were kind of expecting you to, to make a big show, you know, it's your birthday, coming through the other door, instead you just, oh, you're here, cool, happy birthday, you know, it's like really anticlimactic, Jesus is not, like, people think that the entire city just swelled to the gates and was like, oh my gosh, everybody just shut down everything, it's not quite like that, now, there are people who are pumped to see him, but, you know, you, I just feel like we have these images of like, oh my gosh, the entire city was at this gate waiting for him to just, no, no, no. I mean, there's far better, greater things going on. I, I like to joke that if this was a parade, Jesus is like leading the parade, but he's driving like in, you know, uh, in 08 Corolla, like, <laughs> and then behind him is this massive 300 foot inflatable and people are going to say, hey, hey, what'd you like about the parade? Nobody's going to be like, you know what, Jesus in that Corolla, like, that was, that was awesome, you know, like, he threw some good candy, no, it's just, it's not that impressive, you know, people who knew what they needed to see, like, knew that this was important, but most people were not like, oh my gosh, shut down Jerusalem for this, you know, and I just, I think about that, I just think about his entry, like, his, it's just, it's just very humble, like, it follows Zechariah, like, yeah, there's people there pumped, and and they're and and they're excited, but it is not this massive grand thing like Pilate or like the entire city just bends to him and what he's doing. And so I want to talk about kind of three different groups of people that we see in the text here, and this is where we're going to kind of hone in to, to uh, today is just 
who are the three groups of people and their different opinions of him. And what's fun about this is everyone is wrong, for the most part. Um, most of us are wrong when we celebrate Palm Sunday and get ready for Holy Week, and that's okay. We're going to learn that. Uh, in verses 12 and 13, the beginning of, of John 12, it says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So all the people uh, you know, that were there... And they had heard, a large crowd had heard he's coming. Like I said, they, they had heard he did some crazy healings. They come to this east gate, and um, they take branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, and they began to shout. That, I think the correct pronunciation is actually Hosanna, not Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed, which means save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Wow, look at that. They got it. They're like, save us, king of Israel, right? People very much are becoming attuned to hoping that he will fulfill what they want. The problem is the means at which he's going to fulfill that is very, very, very not in line with what they're thinking, right? They're thinking violence, war, power. Jesus is flipping everything upside down. And so there, there are some people who are broken and hurting and curious and, and hopeless and looking for this king to come save them. But their intentions are far off in terms of what's going on. And in fact... Uh, we see in verse 17 and 18, it gives away, you know, kind of why they're here. So the crowd who had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were continuing to testify about it. They're there. They're following him because they saw this guy healed from death. And it says, because that they had heard Jesus had performed this miraculous sign, the crowd went out to meet him. It's just fascinating, and I, I don't think any of us would disagree. If we found out someone was just raising people from the dead, I think we'd want to go get some tickets and see that, right? And, or maybe heal something from us. And so while they're remembering Zechariah's prophecy, they're remembering how great David and Solomon are, and they're thinking, this is, this is Jesus. Like, this city's about to be ours. But even then, we, I, I think that they're not really actually there for the right reasons. Nobody really cares about Jesus himself. Everybody cares about what they think he will do for them. There is a selfishness that is just so deeply ingrained in who we are, right? Like we, we try to do things with noble ambition, but at the end of the day, a lot of times they're rooted in a self, a selfishness um, that we can kind of try to play along with in, in line with the goodness that we think will occur. People think about, oh my gosh, they're throwing cloaks and branches. I mean, they're, they're, they're and I, I like to think about it like this. And I'm not saying there aren't people who are just genuinely pumped. Like we're like, praise God, we think he's here. But I think a lot of people are thinking this. Imagine if at your job, let's just say you work a normal, like, I don't know, nine to five marketplace job, you're like pretty low on the list, right? And your manager, you hear rumor and you're pretty confident that your manager's about to be promoted the whole way up to president and CEO of the company. Let's just say it's a big company, a couple hundred employees. Your manager, who's like, you know, above 15, 20 people, whatever, is about to be the top dog. Now, I want to ask you, do you think over the next few weeks that you'd work harder or, or like less hard? Um, when you know that's happening, you know, I would say, I think, uh, you work pretty hard. I think you start overworking and trying to be impressive because, Hey, when he gets to the top, like, remember my name, you know, like I, I want a nice little pay raise or, or a promotion. And I think this is what a lot of people is going on. If this guy's going to come in here and he's going to take over this town, I'm going to throw down my cloak now. Cause I'm going to yield some good results when this thing's done. Like, we know that because literally on their way here, his two closest disciples are arguing about who is going to be the, uh, the number two in command, right? Hey, Jesus, if you're going to be CEO, like, who's going to be below you, right? And that's, I mean, that, this is people, man. This is like, and I just, I want you to reflect, and you'll realize this this whole week. This is a, the loneliest week, I think, for Jesus. Just 
just people letting him down left and right. His closest disciples, there is just so much loneliness and misunderstanding in this week. And this is why we must engage with it because we often take Jesus and we put him on a pedestal that he is not to be on, nor did he ever want to be on. And then we get mad when he doesn't do what we want him to do. And I just think, like, we are so similar to these people, to these disciples. Jesus, what can you give me? And I'll do what I need to do right now to make sure, you know, you think good of me. And it's just so counterintuitive to the gospel. But this is who people are. So this first group of people, they respond with admiration, probably some helplessness and selfishness uh, rooted in that. You know, they want freedom from Rome, maybe even the Pharisees and their laws. Second group is the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the you know Sadducees, all these type of religious leaders. Verse nineteen, it says that the Pharisees said to one another, "You see that you can do nothing. Look, the world has run off after him." These guys are mad. I mean, I, let's be honest. I think we'd be mad too. They, you know, they think Jesus is going to usurp their entire tradition and custom of how they should worship God, and on the holiest week of the year, like this is their big shebang. You know, this is. This they're, this is what they're paid for, man. This 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 Passover week and the feasts and all. I mean, they're this is their their gig, and and to use that birthday analogy, you know, when you walk in the side door, and this would be like, you know, it's your birthday and you're 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 about to celebrate you, right? Like if you're let's just say you're a Pharisee and you go into your birthday party, and then all of a sudden, Joe over there decides to propose to his girlfriend. And then all of a sudden, what was going to be singing happy birthday for you is now everybody celebrating Joe and his now fiance's engagement. And, and it's just like, really, dude? Like, really, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna ruin, like, you know, you're going to take my thunder, really? And that's what they feel like, you know? I'm, I'm just, for anybody out there who has done that, um, who has proposed to somebody during like, someone's wedding or whatever, you're forgiven. You get one, though. Don't, don't do it again, okay? You've learned. You just don't do it again. It's, it's just like, and, and so the Pharisees are sitting in the corner with their arms crossed, like, you know, I can't believe, you know, are you kidding me? This, you know, it, I get it. Like, that's their, their thing, their security. Their, Jesus is, is, is yeah, he's, he's, he's the head of the party now. That's why I said, even the world has run after, off, after him. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a bummer. They just can't stand the idea of losing their comfort and their status. And then the third group of people, which I think are, the, are pretty unique. When we, it's, this isn't in our actual scripture we're reading, but it's a little bit later in verse 20. You have these Gentiles, the Gentiles, the seekers, the, those who are not promised the same inheritance and or um, classifications of the Jewish people, but they're curious. In fact, they would come to town to engage in some of the festivities, the feasts, and stuff like that. They couldn't partake in everything, but they are spiritually curious. Maybe they want healing or benefits that Jesus has to offer. So you have a, a modge podge of people greeting Jesus and that, that are full of this town. And regardless of all these people, who are all basically wrong, assuming things to Jesus and his coming kingdom, uh, they're wrong because at the end of the day, they just think the dress is one color, and they can't see past what their eyes are deceiving them. In fact, they think their eyes are right. And many of us, even today, are still missing that. We think Jesus is coming on this triumphal entry, and the entire town is just bowing down to him, and Rome is not nervous at all, which they're very, they start to become very nervous about this guy, and and the Pharisees are totally cool with it, which they are not. Like, we just have so many misunderstandings. And, and so I just want to close with this. I, 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 I missed this yesterday, and I'm glad I got to at least reiterate it today. The point of today and this teaching and this, this day is that this is the tea to set up for, for the bat for Jesus. Like, Palm Sunday is, is of itself things to take away, but it is setting up the tea of the tension and the chaos that, that will in, incur in the next six days. 
in light of Jesus' um, coming and resurrection. And so I just want us to sit in this and, and to think about the, the image and the trajectory that we have for Jesus in this storm and this tension and the reality of it over the next six days in our lives. I want to close with just reiterating verse 19. The Pharisee said, you can see that you can do nothing. The world has run off after him. The world has indeed run off after him, but we realize when he dies on the cross, he dies alone. And really no one knew what he was coming for, how it was going to happen. And I just think that's incredibly lonely. If there's one person who can empathize in your loneliness or your misunderstanding or your insecurities, it is Jesus, the son of God. All his disciples leave him. The, the, he dies around a few of women who are with him and, and maybe John at a distance. John was kind of there, we think. Um, and so though you might be shocked by this, the people who got this right is even more profound at this time than it is today is women. Is this small group of women who just knew what he was about and what he was going to do and they stayed with him through courage. There's women at his death the first people to go decide to go to the tomb to you know are women and they proclaim his his gospel good news he's resurrected and i just want you to know that at some point during this week you might feel like yeah this this guy's great but i don't think i can come to the throne i don't think i'm able to do that i have too much i don't know sin i have too much brokenness i'm too much insecurity or i don't really believe that this will actually change my heart and life jesus used the most you know, social underclass people to prove that you don't need anything. You don't need to bring anything to the throne except yourself because these women had nothing culturally that would be significant to offer. And the people that followed behind him as he entered through the gate had nothing significant to offer. Most of them probably either didn't have a job or were willing to leave the job to see they were that desperate. So I just, I want you to think about, you know, in these three camps, maybe where, where you, where you reflect most and that, that then allows you to understand what are the, what are the deep heart pinnings in that area that you're just not letting go of. The first one is the, you know, the, the curious people that are following him and throwing down their cloaks. Are you like the fans or followers behind Jesus? You know, have you, are you laying down garments? Maybe you, you realize you're broken, you know, you're broken. You're interested in what Jesus may have to offer. Maybe for the right reasons or the wrong, but you're still interested, right? These people don't maybe have the right reasons necessarily, but they're there and they're hungry for what he has. Or are you more like the Pharisees? Maybe you're angry, argumentative, or resistant to what Jesus stands for in his kingdom, and you're worried about how it would alter your current comfort and your norm. Or are you like the Gentiles? You're spiritually curious, right? You kind of have this buffet of spirituality, but you've never associated following Jesus as something maybe you'd want to put, go all in at or be interested in, or, um, but you're compelled, you know, you're fascinated, you're interested, you, you like his teachings or his love for people or the way the church has been compelled to love the world, but you're just not sure. And you're not sure if you fit in that place. You kind of feel like an outsider. All of these rules of these people, you know, this summarizes us as a community. Like we all are falling into these areas. And I just ask that you would pray through this week how are my presuppositions affecting what Jesus is ultimately coming to do? And I think the solution, there's just one solution, that we humble ourselves, that we pray, Holy Spirit, come. Lord, humble me and give me eyes to see you this week. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.